There's great news. The divorce rate is down across the board, except there's one group that's not down, and that's what they call gray divorces, those 50-plus who actually are getting to a stage of life, and they're going, hmm, maybe I'll just throw in the towel. Well, my guest today, Michelle Weiner davis says that divorce prevention actually starts 20, 30 years before you're ever thinking about divorce. This is Sarah Heider, and welcome to the Bottom Line Advocator Podcast. I'm Sarah Heiner, president of Bottom Line Inc., the number one provider of expert-sourced, expert-vetted, expert advice that empowers your life. I'm thrilled to be talking today to Michelle Weiner davis founder of the Divorce Busting Center in Boulder, Colorado, which helps on-the-brink couples save their marriages. Her belief that most divorces are absolutely unnecessary allows her to work with troubled couples to look past problems and look forward to focus on solutions. Michelle's the best-selling author of eight books, including Divorce Busting, a step-by-step approach to making your marriage loving again, Healing from Infidelity, The Sex-Starved Marriage, and Divorce Remedy. You can learn more about Michelle at her website, divorcebusting.com, and her books are available on Amazon and at all major booksellers, and I highly recommend them. And Michelle, hello, thank you. We've known each other for years. Thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for inviting me. I appreciate our continued collaboration. You're one of the, you know, your articles in Bottom Line Personal are always one of the top rated and the top visited. So you're, you're, we're hitting, we're hitting a, a keynote with people when we talk about this stuff. So we're going to talk today about gray divorce. And it's so funny. I was talking to my daughter yesterday and I mentioned that I ran into a mother of one of her childhood friends and said that uh, this woman told me that she'd gotten divorced about five years ago. And my daughter said to me, oh my gosh, I feel like everybody in your age group is getting divorced. And the fact of the matter is that while divorce rates are down across the board, gray divorce, so I'll call it 50 plus or so, is still on the rise. So like, what's what's the top line on that? Well, First of all, I want to just backtrack a teeny bit and, you know, for your listeners to really hear me say, uh, you know, with those fancy titles, divorce busting, and that I've been really focused on helping couples stay together and prevent divorce. I'm not someone who proselytizes or forces people to think about staying together. Some divorces are absolutely necessary, but that said, in the uh, nearly four decades that I've been specializing in work with couples, what I find over and over and over again is that so much of the time when people are really struggling in their marriages, um, it truly is about the fact that they haven't uh, learned the relationship skills that it really requires to make a marriage very loving, successful, and have that be sustained over time. And so. I am a bit of a psychotic optimist that with new information, people can do better. Maya Angelou once said, you know, people do the best they can with the tools they have. When they know better, they do better. So I just wanted to give that little piece of information, uh, well, you know, to, to your listeners. Well, and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll get to, well, actually, I'm going to cut my own question off. I'm going to start back at the beginning a little bit because um, we're okay. going to talk later on about your solutions and what, you know, the fact that, you know, 
problems in your 50s started in your 20s. But let's talk for a minute about the fact that the divorce rates overall are down. So what's yeah. what are the what are the younger people doing right? Like what's what's different in the choices that are being made right now that has well, a younger people yeah. not getting divorced at the same rate. There's something that changed. Well, it isn't just the young people. You know, divorce the divorce rate skyrocketed in the 60s and the 70s, and I think that that was a uh, sort of a the pendulum swinging the other way in terms of the very restrictive uh, cultural norms that preceded that. Um, and so, you know, freedom was looked at as getting out of your marriage because marriage was looked upon in a lot of ways as being very confining. And then eventually in the early 80s, the divorce rate actually began to level off. It wasn't just the young folks. Um, it, it was people, I believe, recognizing that after uh, two to three decades of rampant divorce and disposable marriages, that divorce wasn't the panacea that so many people thought that it would be, that in many cases, uh, divorce created new and unintended problems. And I, so part of what I think has happened is that now we have the benefit of hindsight. Um, and some people have become a bit more cynical about the institution of marriage. That would be, I think, you know, the, the young folks there, as you probably know, marrying later. Um, some people aren't marrying at all. I know that's contributed to a lower divorce rate. Um, but I do think that people are uh, becoming more mindful about what it means to be in the ma- in a marriage, and you know, the, in my parents' generation, marriage in a sense was a business deal. Um, there was a breadwinner, and there there was a, a stay-at-home parent to take care of the kids. Um, people didn't really expect much more out of marriage. I think today it's very different. People not only have to find ways to negotiate some of those roles. But they also have decided that relationships should also be uh, revolve around love and connection and personal growth and um, you know emotional satisfaction and that's a, you know a big job to fulfill. But I think people are more mindful about putting energy into making those things happen for them. Do you think that a lot of those early marriages should never have happened? Like, so that, you know, that they just, again, as you say, that they were economic decisions or, like, I know, you know, in my mother's case, although my parents had a very happy marriage for over 50 years, but she was starting to feel a little old. I think she was at the ripe old age of 23. I think my father was at the ripe old old age of of 25 when they got married. And Mm -hmm. um, 25 or 26, they got married. They met New Year's weekend. They got married in June. And Mm -hmm. to hear the story, they... I'll call it they fit the qualifications, so they got married, right? Mm-hmm. And then they made yeah. it work. Um, mm-hmm. But is that, I mean, based on, based on what you're saying in terms of what people are looking for in marriage now, like should a lot of those marriages never would fly in today's day and age either? You know, it's interesting, Sarah. I, I, um, people are, often say that because they wait a little bit longer and they're they're not getting married because it was the only way to get out of their parents house or because there was a pregnancy um that they're waiting longer they know themselves better and therefore they know what to look for in a partner but there's something else 
that I notice in the couples in my practice is that let's just say instead of getting married at 20, people are getting married at 30. Um, here's the deal about people, life, and relationships. No matter what age you were when you got married, um, over time you're going to change. You are different at 40 than you were at 30, or different at 50 than you were at 40, and so on. And what I always tell people is that marriages, like children, go through developmental stages. Mm -hmm. People who are in happy long-term marriages end up having to, in a sense, go with the changes, divorce their old marriages, and start new ones with each other. It's, it's constant. It really is constant work. I also find that when people are unhappy and considering getting divorced, when they begin to explain why and they look at the history of their relationship and they come up with statements like, I never should have married him in the first place, or... Um, I, it was just all about physical attraction. I didn't pay enough attention to the lack of emotional connection. The truth is we have selective memories. Most of the people in my practice who think about divorce review their lives, and what they remember are the negative aspects of their lives. It's revisionist history at its best. Um, when I pry a little bit, most people, um, even who initially came in with the story, I shouldn't have married him or her in the first place, there, there were reasons people connect, and those reason, reasons were true and valid at the time. Um, again, what people change, what, what interests them, what's important to them, changes over time, learning how to move with those changes, how to adapt and uh, really sort of reinvent yourselves on a regular basis is what's necessary. I have this, this theory or this view that I think a lot of people are totally getting married for the wrong reason. Like they haven't necessarily thought long-term in life and they're not thinking about who's going to help me be my best self and be a great partner me, for me for life versus, mm -hmm. you know, they're hot in bed, they're good looking, we're fun. They have, you know, mm -hmm. they, we play tennis together. Um, mm -hmm. but, and I, and I find women have this bad habit of, I'll call it thinking that they're marrying a pet husband and that their job as a yeah. wife is to fix them, change them, mother them, correct their wardrobe, fix their hair, blah, 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 blah. And that, mm -hmm. which is our disasters for mm -hmm. long-term partnering. I think two things happen. Um, one is what you're saying, Sarah. I think people think, well, my, my partner isn't exactly perfect, but I know I can, uh, I can help him or her to evolve personally, and we can make these changes together. And, you know, the other thing that happens is that um, I, I just lost my train of thought. Um, you know, that they, when you say they marry for the wrong reasons, I think they, this is what I was going to say. They, people tend, in the beginning of relationships, to focus on the things they have in common, which makes sense. I mean, we all do that. And they feel that they, are, they have found their soulmate, and therefore, you know, it's inevitable that they should be together and that they will always be together. 
Um, and I, those are not the right reasons. Because I once wrote a post about, to me, after working with couples for so long, what I really see that people don't ask about or don't focus on when they're um, assessing a future partner is, sure, you're going to feel great and infatuated, have a lot in common in the beginning, when, when the differences show up, when the problems show up, how, um, how committed will your partner be to doing the hard work to work through it? Those are the questions I think people should be asking each other. Are you willing to get help if this happens? Are you, and, and by the way, when I say help, I don't necessarily mean going to therapy. There are, there's lot, there are a lot of resources out there to help people work through hard times. But so often I find these days that when the differences become blaring, it, it, that's the point at which one or both people feel like it isn't worth the effort, it isn't worth the energy, and they throw in the towel. Well, and do you think they're that, not looking at that? And do you think that a lot of people are, I'll call it, ignoring red flags? That you know that women will forgive the fact that a guy doesn't talk as much as they'd like to, but they go, well, that's just the way he is. He's been whatever it is. They make excuses away from it. The guy may you know, make other excuses for whatever she does or doesn't do for him. Um, and that they pretend like that doesn't matter or it will be okay when those really are red flags that they need to be Absolutely. attending to. Yeah, because you know that expression, love is blind. Yes. You know, when you, when you want something to happen, when you want a relationship to be a, an important part of your life, you tend to downplay the issues that maybe aren't working so well, and again, really emphasize the things that are, instead of doing an honest assessment, uh, can this work in my life? I, I have a friend who is in her late 50s, and she met a guy about that same age who had never been married. And not to say that that's a bad thing, but I did say to her, did you guys, and she, she was very interested in this guy, I asked her, you know, did you have a conversation, at least from his perspective, as to why he's never been in a committed relationship? And her response to me was, um, no, actually, I didn't want to go there because, quite honestly, I like that he doesn't have an ex-wife and, other, and kids to deal with. Right. Well, do I understand her perspective? Absolutely. But, you know, maybe it's worth having a, a deeper understanding of how someone could have gotten through whatever 58 years of his life without ever wanting commitment. Yeah. Worthy of discussion, don't you think? I, I would, but we all kind yeah. of interpret it. It's interesting that you don't want to go there. You're thinking about planning your life with someone and you don't, you don't want to ask them about why they never married before. That's a little weird. Well, I mean, but I think it fits in with what you're saying. There yeah. are red flags, at least yes. there would be to me, but people want to emphasize the positive aspects right. of, you know, not having to deal with exes nor having to deal with stepchildren. To me, that is just, it's not being realistic. Yes. Do you think that children of divorce go into their marriages differently? You know, there is, um, there is certainly some research about children of divorce um, sometimes there's, I've read research where people, children of, adult children of divorce have a more challenging time 
making marriages work and staying committed just simply because divorce has been part of their family history. But conversely, and uh, I've also read about adult children of divorce doing just the opposite, having grown up in that kind of family environment and being therefore so much more committed to making right. their own marriages work. And I'm, I'm one of them. So I, I get that. Yeah, well, and I guess, you know, it all depends on the DNA of the divorce, what the divorce was like, and the DNA of the individual and how they Absolutely. face their lives. All right, let's talk about Absolutely. those gray divorces. Yes, let's do it. Okay, um, so what's going on? So why are the divorces increasing, uh, you know, among the 50 plus? Um, I mean, there's the empty, I've, I've got a few, I- few ideas here. You want me to throw them out to you? Um, you know, the empty nesting. How about the people that have stayed together for the kids? Um, well, let me, let me say that. Let's talk about that because I think that is super important. I would say probably of all the, all the reasons that you and I are going to talk about, this is probably the, mo- the biggest, most important one. I see so many couples who, when the kids are little, um, it's sort of it's chaotic. It's divide and conquer. You know, let's focus on the kids. Let's focus on work. Um, and, you know, there, there's some practical, pragmatic reasons for doing that. But what tends to happen in a lot of these relationships is that over time, because they haven't prioritized the relationship, um, they begin to lead parallel but very separate lives. And that becomes the status quo. And typically one person, when the last kid leaves home and now they're empty nesters, um, there's one person who will look at his or her spouse and go, is this all there is? I am living with a perfect stranger. Um, This is not the way I want to spend the next, you know, 20, 25 years of my life. I want to press the reset button and give myself another chance. Um, So it truly you know, so often, and, and I, I always tell couples, the very best thing you can do for your kids is to put your marriage first, because so many couples have marriages that are kid-centric, and, and they really believe in their heart of hearts that they're doing the best possible thing for their children. And marriages don't survive that sort of philosophy. Well, and it's so funny because they forget about the part of role modeling a happy relationship for their kids. Absolutely. Right? It, it becomes I, all know, transactional and they never see mom and dad kiss and hug and play and goof around and splash water on each other or whatever. And have date nights. You know, so, you know, so often when both couples are working, they'll tell me that they want to spend the time in the evenings and on the weekends with their kids. I completely understand that. But children learn about relationships, not through what parents tell them about relationships, but through their sponges. They absorb what they see. And as you said, sir, if they're not hugging and kissing and enjoying each other's company in the presence of their children, if they're not going on date night, then that's those are the lessons kids learn about relationships. And so I, it, it's absolutely imperative that, you know, people don't say to themselves, 
yes, we are putting our relationship on the back burner until our kids leave home, then we'll get a chance to be like we were in our, you know, pre-kid state, because it doesn't work that way. And, you know, if, if anyone's listening today in one of those marriages, it's, it's really, really important to, to make sure that you carve out time for yourself as a couple, even if that means, you know, leaving the kids with a, with a babysitter, having a date night either during the week or on the weekend. It's, it's not icing on the cake. It's the cake. Well, absolutely. Well, and the other funny thing about it, so now that they've been with that person for years, and you and I were joking before we started recording about, like, I would never want to, I've been married, very happily married for 32 years. I'd marry my husband again. He's awesome. And I always say that, like, I would never want to start again. Like, it's it's taken years to break him in just right for him to break me in just right. So it's weird to me that, so now the kids are gone, but you had some connection with this person to start with. You know how they work. You know that like from a lifestyle point of view, you like, you know, the habits and you know, you can cohabitate theoretically. So to Mm -hmm. even go, okay, the kids are gone now. All right. I'm out of here because I don't know who you are anymore, but you do know who they are. So to start from scratch, go out there in the crazy world of who knows who's out there is just so funny to me. Well, here's, Here's sort of a newsflash. The world is filled with different kinds of people with different needs. So I'm more like you, Sarah. I have that need for familiarity and comfort and security. And so the the thought of starting all over uh, with a new person and having to get it right sounds daunting. However, there are a lot of other people in the world who really thrive on novelty and newness and excitement and variability and it it becomes a lot more appealing to think I can dump this old comfortable shoe and go find something you know new and exciting and and there's another piece to all of this one of the reasons so many couples lead these separate but parallel lives is because in the early years of their marriages they've they've reached out to each other for some form of connection, whether it's connection through conversation or through touch or through spending enjoyable time together. And when the other partner was too busy, disinterested, otherwise preoccupied, instead of really pressuring one another, holding each other accountable for continued connection, most people, or at least a lot of people, give up. And so when the kids leave home, um, when they have given up so many years ago, they feel empty, they feel resentful, they feel like meeting someone new who will, of course, then shower them with attention in the way it's almost like an oasis in the desert. It becomes appealing to have their own personal needs met with this new fresh input yeah but you and i both know that's new and fresh for a while until it's not anymore you're (laughs) preaching to the choir (laughs) Um, you know so you made a comment earlier about the expectations of marriage and that the rules kind of changed early on it was 
um, kind of this economic relationship. And then somewhere along the way, they decided they were supposed to be wildly romantic and it was supposed to be their best friends. And I've always said, and I think this is actually part of the key to the success in my marriage, that we're not each other's everything. And that we've both maintained individual interests and friends outside of the relationship. We have a lot of things that we do together, a lot of friends together. But I think that that there's this perception of they have to be my everything. And if I'm betraying the marriage, if I have my own interest or if I go away for the weekend with a girlfriend or something like that. What do you say to that? Well, I always tell couples that relationships are the one place where one half and one half does not equal a whole. That healthy, loving relationships um, are two people, involve two people who invest in each other, but also have separate lives that from which they derive personal happiness, which, by the way, they can then bring to the relationship, you know, and share. And I think you're absolutely right. Putting all of your emotional eggs in one basket is really craziness. Um, you know, so often, for example, and this is a stereotype, so if, you know, there are people listening who don't fit it, um, but so often women derive more, more of a sense of connection through verbal conversation, and they get very disappointed in their husbands when their husbands don't seem to have that same need to talk as they do. And I always tell women who feel that way, um, that, that, you know, their spouses are different. Talk to their spouses when their spouses are willing to or open to it. But then connect with your girlfriends. Connect with other friends. Don't expect your partner to satisfy all of your emotional needs because it just isn't. It's a, it's a formula for disaster. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the running joke, my husband and I, the running joke we've learned over this time you know how women kind of like to repeat something and we talk about it and then we'll say it again. And he'll look at mm-hmm. me and go, we've already talked about that. And I've learned over the years to go, I know, but I just need to say it again. So can you just sit there politely and smile and nod while I work through it a couple more times? It sounds like you should be doing couple seminars. Well, I don't know. It works for me. It doesn't mean that I work for everybody else. I think everybody has their unique relationships and that's part of the challenge is figuring out how to make it work for you. Um, yes. Let's, I want to talk about what By other aspects. Let me just add something there, Sarah, because you did something that I think is really brilliant. It's not only figuring out what works for you, it's being able to coach your partner about what will be a positive, what will yield a positive outcome. You said, you said instead of taking it personally, that he's cutting you off, and he doesn't want to listen to you, and what kind of a mean person is he? You, you accepted your differences, and yet you said to him, do me a favor, humor me. And if more people could understand that being different doesn't mean that the other person is wrong. You can both be right, even though you're different, and then find ways to coach each other so that it isn't a matter, it, that it can really be a win-win situation just in the way that you described. Yeah, well, it took me years to get to that place. I have to say, when you know, earlier on in our marriage, I wasn't as good at that, and I had my my moments of sensitivities. But over time, you know, that's what happens in a long term relationship: is you learn to work with it versus throw it away. Mm-hmm. Well, good for you. Thank you. Um, I want to mention one thing about the parents 
sticking together for the sake of the kids because I was surprised I just yeah. read this about you know again they stay they stay together for the ki- sake of the kids so the kids have their parents together while they're growing up and then kids are out to college and parents go okay fine as you said I don't know who you are anymore I'm out of here um, but I read something about even adult children 30s 40s get have emotional damage when their parents get divorced that it really affects them in terms of what they can believe in terms of solidity and trust in life Mm -hmm. and that Mm -hmm. it's naive of these parents to think okay my kids are cooked they're 18 they're 20 Mm -hmm. and now they don't need us as a couple and a family unit anymore Hmm. yeah you know obviously i hear that a lot and although you know i i can speak to this on a personal level even though i wasn't 30 or 40 i was 17 uh, and I think my, my mother waited until I was just about to leave home, which I was being launched into the world of college, um, you know, thinking that I'm old enough, mature enough, I can deal with all of this. And here's the truth. For me, it was one of the most devastating, devastating experiences of my life because in my case, my parents never, ever fought. So we didn't, my brothers and I did not anticipate this coming. Um, and it is almost like um, the sense that my, your parents being together um, is like the law of gravity. You just kind of count on that happening. Um, and it's very uprooting um, and disconcerting, even for adults, um, to, to have that, um, that belief be dispelled. And by the way, having said that, I should also tell you that I've talked to enough people who say that their parents' divorce was a relief, um, and in part because they argued all the time, Mm. or that they wished their parents had gotten a divorce because they argued all the time. But the one thing I want to say is that when parents who are, you know, leading very separate lives and they want more personal happiness in terms of a gray divorce, children, whether young children or adult children, don't really care all that much, believe it or not, if their parents have boring, um, unsatisfying marriages. That is not really their concern. A lot of children's concern is wanting their home to be intact. Right. regardless of the age right and there is what i've called divorce remorse you know where they get divorced even later on and then they they start to feel regretful of even though they're happy in their own new lives but they're also realizing that their ramifications now suddenly they're not able to have those family holiday moments assuming that they were somewhat pleasant beforehand or that they um they can't, re- you know, they can't enjoy the grandchildren, you know, in, in kind of the fantasy of the grandma and grandpa, that they're, they're not able to provide some things that they might have preferred to be able to do had they not divorced. Absolutely. You know, um, I wish I had a dollar for each time someone said to me, if I, you know, this is after they've divorced and their lives are on track again. They, but they say to me, um, I wish I knew then what I know now about the amount, the amount of energy an effort that it took to get my life back on track because because perhaps I could have invested that energy into making my first marriage work. And also, I 
I, when someone is unhappy in a marriage, the only thing they focus on is the relief that they're going to feel getting away from that person. They often do not know about, they don't have a crystal ball, they do not anticipate the, the, um, the negative aspects, the fallout. For example, just what you're saying, um, missing that sense of history, you know, that only my ex-spouse knew this pet name or this personal, private joke or being able to be, you know, um, at the hospital when their daughter is, is giving birth or, you know, going to weddings of their children and having it be bittersweet because the discomfort of who's going to sit next to whom, you know, people don't anticipate the negative fallout. Mm -hmm. And by the way, you know, on a personal note, uh, my mother, who was relatively happily divorced, did not anticipate that both of my brothers um, would go for periods of their lives without having a relationship with her because of how hurt they were. Um, You know, no one anticipates that sort of thing. It's, yeah, it's really difficult. I don't think parents at all realize how difficult it is on their kids, no matter what age the kids are. All right, yeah. let's talk, right. So, so let's talk about your basic premise where you don't have to get divorced and, the, and preventing divorce actually starts at the beginning of the marriage. It's not like, mm-hmm. you know, suddenly the kids are gone and you're in couples therapy. So, mm-hmm. so talk about the fact that prevention really starts, I'll call it 20 years earlier, 30 years earlier. Well, prevention really starts when you, when you get married. Um, you know, and I, I know that I'm repeating myself here, but I, I truly believe that although at times it's challenging and I know how hectic life can be, that marriage really does have to be the number one priority. And when I say that, everyone should understand that what makes me feel loved is different from what, you know, what it would take to make you feel loved. And the, the, the key is in really, over time, figuring out what it takes for your partner to feel uh, important, precious, sacred, um, and loved in the relationship, whether it's, um, and this is a really great resource for people uh, is a book called The Five Love Languages, um, where, you know, pe- some people feel love through the spending time together, through touch, through sex. Others feel love through um, words of affirmation or conversations. Others feel love through what's referred to as acts of service, which means supporting a family, taking care of kids, the daily things that we have to do to, <clears throat> excuse me, make life work. And finally, other people feel love through material gifts. <clears throat> and the, the, the key really is in figuring out what your partner's love language is and showing love in their love language. Because what typically happens is we show love to our partners in the way that we want to be loved. And that, it really doesn't work. So making the marriage a number one priority is, is probably the best preventative measure. There's another thing, and um, this is, you know, I, my, my uh, practice is focused on working with couples who are teetering on the brink of divorce. As a matter of fact, it's almost always 
one person who's certain or fairly certain they want out of the marriage and one person who really wants the marriage to work. By the way, divorce is almost always a unilateral decision. And one of the most common patterns that I see in these couples is that there's one person who early on started feeling some unhappiness in the marriage, approached their partner with their concerns. Their partner either didn't get the importance of the request to change um, or ignored it initially. And instead of persisting and holding that other partner accountable for being present in the relationship, person A um, sort of laid over, played dead, and, and, and just stopped trying and stopped complaining. And when they stop trying and stop complaining, their spouse thinks everything is okay, and so it's business as usual. And the person who's been unhappy then sometimes creates what I call the exit strategy. And that exit strategy often takes months or years to implement. It could be like we've been talking about when the youngest child goes off to college or when I find a new uh, partner to be involved with or when I get a better job so that I can support myself. And during, in, during that interim, when they're working this plan and there's no discussion about the problems in the marriage, the other person, the other partner thinks everything is just fine. Therefore, when the unhappy person, you know, announces their intention to get a divorce, almost always their partner is shocked, devastated, and dismayed. And so the, the learning lesson here is that it's absolutely essential that while, of course, you can't talk about every little thing that annoys you, but the big things, the things that are real deal breakers, it's essential to not give up in terms of your effort to let your partner know that you really do require a change in order to stay in the marriage. You have to talk about what's wrong. You must get help if it's not working. Don't just throw in the towel How do you and get your resign yourself. How do you get your partner? So when you try to present an issue and everybody has their filters that they're hearing through, so you say, you know, you don't listen to me, you have whatever, and then the partner... I'll call it won't hear it or can't hear it. They're hearing it through their filter. They they do what they do. They take it personally. They say you're picking on them, whatever it is. So that now you're in this, like how do you how do you help somebody get past that brick wall? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, one of the biggest shifts for me as a therapist um, has been to look at a rather to look at that sort of problem in a rather innovative way, which is this. When, when someone has a problem in a relationship, they typically do something to fix it. And if it works, great, life goes on. If it doesn't work, instead of saying to themselves, that didn't work, now I have to do something entirely different, they typically say to themselves, that didn't work, I guess I have to say it more emphatically. I guess I have to do it one more time with feeling. And I refer to that as more of the same. And as you know, insanity has been defined as doing the same old thing and expecting different results. But the truth is, you do the same old thing, you do get different results, things get worse. So I'll give you an example. Um, Let's say a wife decides she wants more 
conversation and emotional intimacy with her husband. And so she tells them about it. They have a deep, meaningful conversation. And then the next morning, he picks up the newspaper at the breakfast table. And she looks at him. She said, I just told you I need to talk to you more. We need to really connect emotionally. And now you're reading the paper. He says, yes, we just talked yesterday. Do we have to do it every day? And she gets very angry. Right. And he can't stand her anger, so he leaves the room. She pursues him, and she talks to him or nags at him even more, which leads to more withdrawal. And I understand that what she's doing is logical, but here's the deal. It isn't working. And so one of the things I always tell people is that to try to assess what what have you been doing that hasn't been working, and now figure out what would be very different. And in her case, what may be very different if she's very frustrated with his tendency to, you know, shut her out, is that she shouldn't show up for breakfast one day, or she should just make herself less available. So often when people do something, they take an action, they stop talking about it when the issue has been talking, it's the first time their partners notice that there's a vacuum, and and then they start pursuing the relationship in a more meaningful way. So it's, it really it requires you to be a bit more creative and sometimes get some outside input because it's hard to see the apple, I mean the forest right. from the tree. And does some of this also cycle back to what you were saying before about understanding what your partner's needs are for love and basically how they function? And then I always say also like I, being aware of how your partner shows love. Right? So the classic, you know, men get more sex when they take out the trash. Because yes. women actually find well, that very sexy. So, you know, you might have a husband who's not so verbal and not so effusive, but they make sure that your car is spick and span every day, yes. right? So that, or whatever, that they show their love in a different kind of way than what you're used to seeing and that they function in a different way and needing to get into that rhythm. Well, that's true. But you actually, that's a really great segue uh, to something that's, a topic that's near and dear to my heart, which is this, that let's just say a very typical uh, scenario is that so many women need to feel close and connected to their husbands emotionally, which means talking together, spending time together, in order to be interested in being sexual. And for a lot of men, it's reversed. They need to be close and connected physically in order for them to invest themselves in having those long conversations or wanting to spend a lot of time together. And what tends to happen is if a man is feeling short-changed in terms of physical connection, um, they, they don't necessarily talk about it. They get pissed. They get angry. And anger is not an aphrodisiac. So the more angry he gets, you know, the less she wants sex, the less she wants sex, the more angry she right. gets and they disconnect. And so what, what sometimes when a, a man isn't invested uh, in showing his wife that he's interested in how her day was and having conversations, it may just be because his love language hasn't been spoken in a long time. So when I say be creative, you, that's what you were just talking about. It's, it's really making sure that people are speaking each other's love languages because people are more willing to engage in what I call mutual caretaking when their own needs are met. 
Right. All right, let's, we could go on for hours and hours. I want to, um, I have a question for you. Are there other relationship solutions other than divorce, given how devastating it is emotionally, financially, physically, all of that? There was actually a story in the Wall Street Journal today about more older couples staying together because they live apart. So that not necessarily, you know, having great relationships, but not necessarily being in the same place 24-7. You know, are there other mm-hmm. things before you go jump to divorce court? Well, you know, I, I always hope that when people are seriously considering divorce, that what they're doing is also taking an inventory about if my spouse were completely out of my life, uh, either through divorce or even death, would I consider myself a happy individual? And a lot of people have a lot of work to do in that area. And so I, I say, you know, you can always get divorced. That's a relatively easy thing to do. You can do that. Why not get your own individual life, all those ducks in a row, before you make that decision? In other words, it may mean um, really assessing, how do I need to restructure my own life to make myself happy? Do I need to spend more time with family? Do I need to spend more time with friends? Do I need a new job? Um, Do I need to take a new class, get a new hobby? Do that first, because you're going to need to do it afterwards anyway, and see if that makes you happier and whether, in fact, that it has the spillover effect of, of making you less unhappy with your partner so that you are more interested in doing the work of keeping your marriage intact. Right. Well, and again, back to the point of your spouse doesn't have to be your everything, that mm-hmm. you can still pursue your individual activities and stay married and be perfectly cohabitatable. Absolutely, and I guess I need to put a plug in for this, that if people are considering divorce, um, I, I think it's, um, it doesn't make sense to me to go straight to a divorce attorney. It makes a whole lot more sense to put a speed bump in the way, and by that I mean get some help. Um, you know, there are so many ways to uh, really make sure that you're doing, that you've, le- you've left no stone unturned, whether it's uh, seeking the help of a qualified mental health professional, whether it's going to a wonderful marriage education class. You know, we've had the benefit in the last 10, 15 years to really learn a lot about what it takes to have a successful relationship. And these are skills that are taught and can be learned. Take a class, take a seminar together. It could be really fun. And of course, there are always online um, courses and and books. Some are that more that are more hands-on and practical than others. But there's a lot to be learned. And whether you uh, end up divorcing or not, to me, divorce is very difficult. But it's tragic if you don't have a complete and thorough understanding of the role you played in the downfall of your relationship. Because if you don't, when you leave the relationship, your relationship habits go with you when you go, and you will be bound to experience the same or or similar problems in future relationships. And it's job security for marriage therapy. (laughs) Well, and of course, divorce rates for people who are in remarriages are significantly higher than anything else. That's it, with each subsequent marriage, the divorce rate is is much higher. All right. 
You're, yeah. All right, Michelle Wiener Davis, your website is divorcebusting.com. Your books are all awesome and you are great. Thank you so very much. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I appreciate it, Sarah. I'm talking to Michelle Wiener Davis, founder of the Divorce Busting Center in Boulder, Colorado, which helps on the brink couples save their marriages. She's the best-selling author of eight books, including Healing from Infidelity, The Sex Star of Marriage, and Divorce Remedy. Michelle has been helping couples and readers of Bottom Line Personal improve their relationships with their communication strategies for many years. And she's just one of thousands of top experts who are part of the brain trust of experts for our flagship publication, Bottom Line Personal, where we provide guidance, not just regarding marriage and relationships, but in all aspects of your life including managing the healthcare system, financial planning, living a healthy life, how to save money on travel, insurance, smart tax strategies, and so much more. Bottom Line Personal has been helping people lead more informed and vibrant lives for over 40 years with our actionable and double fact-checked advice. Subscribe today and get a free bonus book, Bottom Line's Best Bets, full of some of the greatest tips from our experts of all time. Just go to bottomlineinc.com forward slash BLP that's bottomlineinc.com forward slash BLP. Hey, this is Sarah Heiner. Thanks for listening to the Bottom Line Advocator podcast. We're working really hard to help you and those around you have a better life. So do me a favor, rate the podcast, review the podcast, and subscribe to the podcast. Thanks again.